Good morning. That step up was bigger than I thought. Halfway up, I was like, oh, bad choice. <laughs> if my jeans rip right now, that is going to be an awkward start to a sermon. Uh, welcome to the Highlands Church. We are so, so glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Mitch Reum. I used to be one of the pastors here up until like three years ago or something. Now I'm dead to you, but you just you can't quite get rid of me. Uh, this is also the... Uh, smallest podium I've ever seen in my life. I love that you guys are custom building podiums for Brody now. That's good. <laughs> Brody's one of my favorite humans. He's so good. At, he's so, he's, you guys are so lucky to have him. I love Brody. Uh, it's been a while since I've been out here to preach. Uh, so I feel like I need to clear the, the air a little bit. You know, when you haven't seen someone in a while, uh, things change and you're always... You're always kind of wondering how and if they're different and in what ways. And, you know, I always fully committed to my role of being kind of the, the man-child on staff, right? I, I, I rightfully got accused of a lot of things when I was here. One thing you couldn't accuse me of was taking myself too seriously. Uh, that, that, that wasn't the thing you could pin me with. And now, now I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, since I've, That's what I've been doing since I left here. And if I were you, I would be wondering... Uh, if I got all super serious now that I'm more in the business world. And so a quick story just to give some of you a little peace of mind. Uh, my wife and I, we go to a church called uh, Mill City, near, kind of near our home in northeast Minneapolis now. And we lead a small group in our home for people who uh, live near us. Well, one Sunday about a month ago, we had a new family come that had a couple with two kids, two younger kids, kindergartner and then one even younger. And as the host, you know, you feel, hopefully, you feel a responsibility to make them feel included and at home. And so I go and start playing with uh, the kindergartner, Elisha, for two reasons. One, let's be honest, he's developmentally closer to me than the adults in the room. Okay, so we'll just put that out there. But two, right, the best way to, to love someone well is to love those who they love the most. And so I go, the best way for me to love uh, these, these two parents who came is love their kids well, right? And so me and Elisha... Uh, the kindergartner, we're playing, and we're having brunch, and everyone is crammed into our living room. Uh, it's kind of a cluster, and uh, I'm playing with Elisha for a while, and then I hit that point, you know, where I want to go connect with the adults. Like, I want, I want to go talk to, to the adults for a while, and so I say to him, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go talk with the grown-ups for a bit, and then I'll come back and play with you some more, okay? And he kind of gives me one of these. Parents, you know this. <clears throat> with the little grunts at the end to really make sure like you hear and pick up what they're putting down and being the super socially savvy individual that I am, I pick up on this. <laughs> so I say, I know, I know. Us grown-ups, we're, we're kind of boring, aren't we? You guys, he did not hesitate for a split second. He looks at me and he goes, well, yeah, but you aren't really a grown-up. <laughs> like, Yep, <laughs> boom roasted, you are right. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm kind of a havesy, aren't I? He's like, yeah. <laughs> so there you go, there you go, there's our catching up. I promise I haven't changed too much in that way. Uh, my wife, Steph, isn't here this morning, even though she wanted to be. Yesterday she told me she was coming. Uh, if you know anything about my wife, you know that normally she loves her sleep. Then you add in being 37 weeks pregnant, and I knew the odds were slim at best. She literally just wants to sit and eat lime popsicles all day. 
So I'm getting ready to leave this morning. I'm like, yeah, no, I know where you're sleeping. So if her water breaks while I'm up here, uh, as is getting the iPad, and he's going to bring us home. So let me pray for us, and we will get started this morning. Father, thanks so much for this church, um, for the staff that leads them and loves them so well, for the people that are the church, the people that are the Highlands. Um, would you use this group of people in this church to be a light to your world here in Delano and the surrounding area? Uh, we pray that people would see the love and generosity that flows out of this building and out of these people, out of this community, and that they would be compelled to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, out of the gate, I need to confess something. It is really, really hard for me to remember to call this church the Highlands still. Like, I, I've gotten there. I finally got past the point where I call it, I, I haven't called it the old name for a long time. I can't let myself say it one time because if I do, I know I will slip right back into it, right? Because when something becomes second nature, it is really hard to shake. I'm talking about the language we use, habits, ways of seeing the world, ways of seeing people. Anytime something becomes familiar, it becomes second nature to us. There's actually a term in psychology for this. If you ever want to impress your friends, it's called a heuristic function. And a heuristic function is essentially where your brain forges shortcuts. When your brain goes into autopilot to save energy. Uh, when you're it, it just, what our brains do is it creates new synapses and pathways so that you can subconsciously accomplish something uh, versus actually having to consciously think through it. I think the most obvious example of this is when you drive to work or school every day, these places that we're really familiar with driving to, when you start on that route, your brain can kind of turn off and you look up and you're there right? Because we internalize, our brain makes these shortcuts so that we don't have to actually think about our route. It's different than, okay, this place I go once a year, where do I turn? Right? We internalize it. Um, and your, your subconscious just starts guiding you there. And sometimes, sometimes these uh, heuristic functions are great and helpful, and sometimes they're just like really annoying. All right, example of an annoying one, when I'm at my dad's house, he still lives in the house that I grew up in, uh, when I go to reach for the silverware drawer, I, st I still reach for the drawer that I grew up with, even though he moved everything in his kitchen seven years ago, right? And it's just like, it's so hardwired in. Here's the one, here's my most annoying one. I call it my hair shove. Um, if we don't know each other yet, this is as short as my hair ever gets. Uh, I... I have two celebrity doppelgangers, okay? One of them is Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> and the other was actually affirmed by Instagram this past year. I've got a, I got a video to, that'll show you. All right, I'll take the bait, but give me someone sexy. No, no, uh-uh. When my hair gets long, I look like Shaggy, and I can't even deny it. Like, I, it gets bushy and kind of afro-y, but not cool enough to, like, actually be an afro, so I just look kind of, like, homely. And eventually what happens is I have to keep shoving my hair out of the way, because uh, it's annoying. And I do it so often that even after the hair is gone, I find myself 
doing it for a few weeks. So I just keep going like this. And I look like a crazy guy who likes petting his forehead. And when I catch myself doing it, I'm like, oh, I hope no one just saw that. I hope no one saw that. Because my brain has made a shortcut that just says, your hair is probably in the way. Just go ahead and move it. Right? And our brain is doing this sort of thing all of the time. And in general, it's a helpful function for us, right? Because we are constantly processing so much information. I don't know if you realize this, but your brain is the most complex, advanced computer on the planet in so many ways. And so because it is processing so much information, it needs shortcuts. Like, a lot of what we're doing in technology all the time is essentially trying to systematize a human brain. Like, when we're trying to do self-driving cars, we're trying to teach reaction times and logic and identifying things. All of these things that our brains just do. Right? We're spending, like, thousands of years of technology to try to recreate the incredible, like, work of art that you and I are. Right, but here's where, here's where things tend to get dicey is because a life of following Jesus involves growth and change, sometimes these kind of pathways that get forged in our brains end up keeping us from growing into the freedom that comes of being in relationship with Jesus. Right, it, it kind of shines a new light on, on moments in scripture where the Apostle Paul says things like, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because sometimes, sometimes the biggest obstacle to a Jesus-like nature are the things that have become second nature. Right? Sometimes the biggest obstacle to a Jesus-like nature are the things that have become second nature. And today we're going to look at two main ways, two ways of thinking that we are meant to grow beyond uh, but first, let's, let's get into Ephesians a bit. If you've been gone for a while, uh, we're going to catch you up to speed here on the book of Ephesians with just a quick snippet from uh, a video from the Bible Project that they did on the book of Ephesians. So go ahead and play that for us, Dennis. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem, where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's 
grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1 verse 10 that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then he here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the <coughs> exalted head of the whole world. Now in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi- and so this is where we're picking up today in Ephesians 2, where Paul is about to dive specifically into this theme of what this new family means and looks like in light of this big uh, God story of redemption that has been playing out through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, and how it reorients everything, how it is actually meant to rewire us. And he's going to lay the groundwork for the second half of the letter where he consistently beats this drum and casts this challenge for the Christians in Ephesus to become one. The second half of the book is this beautiful call from Paul for Christians to, to grow and mature into their identity as Christ's followers. It's this beautiful reminder, invitation, and challenge from Paul that says, the grace of Jesus meets you right where you are at, but it doesn't mean you're meant to stay there. Right? And so to make sense of the text really quickly, I want to get us on the same page about what worship at the temple looked like in Jerusalem at the time, because uh, this was the reality that, that Paul is kind of going to be referring to a lot here. Um, so I've got a map for you. The most succinct way to describe the, the worship and culture of the Jews and early Christians in the first century is really easy. You could honestly just say that it was divided. It was really separated. People felt divided and separated from God, and people felt divided and separated from one another. Um, the, and the temple itself physically embodied this, right? It was full of physical walls based on ethnicity, physical health, abil uh, physical ability, sex, religious education, age, all sorts of things decided where, uh, where you would get to come and worship. And so right at the top there where it says one, that was the holy place. That was, there was one person, that's where God's presence was said to reside. 
Um, and there was one person who was allowed to go in there once a year, the high priest. And he would go in and make an offering on behalf of the people. And then it'll kind of ripple out from there. And so there was a space for the high priest to come. The Levites, they were like the, you can think of them as kind of like the pastors. They were the priests of of the time, they were in charge of maintaining the temple and, and giving people religious education. They were allowed in the next ring out, in that two there, they had their own courtyard. Then if you, go, if you look at four, uh, Jewish men were allowed to come. And they're, they're, they're pretty close. They're not going in, right? But they're, they're kind of closer to the center. And then it keeps going out. In, in number five, we're getting a little further out now, right? Uh, this was chamber of lepers. This is where if you had leprosy or any other sort of, of disease that was seen to make you as sick or you were a social outcast, um, you, would, you were allowed to come and worship, but you had to go there, uh, the Nazarites had their own chamber. Number nine, the women's courtyard. This is where Jewish women and children could come and worship. And then if you wanted to come and worship but you weren't ethnically Jewish, if you weren't part of that bloodline, you were still allowed to come and worship, but you were in the Gentiles' courtyard on the very outside. And so at best, I think the most generous way to describe the, the kind of worship and culture of the time is to say that it functioned like one family with deeply ingrained cliques that never spoke to each other. Right? Where proximity to head of the table, which in this case is God, where God's presence was said to have dwelled, where your proximity to the head of the table made a statement about how close to God you were and how valuable you were. At worst, it, it functioned as the most divided space and hour in the ancient world. And churches outside of Jerusalem, even if they didn't have this exact temple, they all embodied the same approach to worship and life, even if they didn't have a physical temple that was making it explicit. Throughout the New Testament, we are seeing over and over Paul and occasionally Peter having to rebuke churches for the way that they were dividing their rhythms of worship and their gatherings and their lifestyle by tears or barriers between people and groups. One moment he's correcting people about the division that exists at the communion table, right? And, and how the Jews were always getting theirs first and then the Gentiles were allowed to go uh, just out of the gate dividing them into two groups. In other instances, uh, the meals that they would gather around would, that, that were meant to be a, a central gathering point for the community, uh, they became a stumbling block for the tra traditions of some and not others by, by the way that the food was prepared, the food that was being served, um, all sorts of, of problems came up that would typically prioritize the norms of the dominant group. Um, and leave the others kind of on the outside. And there were tons and tons of instances where it was almost as if these Christians were giving lip service to the unity that life in Christ brought. Right? It gave lip service to the truth that life in Christ means being family with God and being family with others. Like they knew this. Intellectually, they had this down, but they hadn't outgrown their divisions yet, right? Like they liked these ideas, but they weren't living them. It was almost as if they had these deeply ingrained ways of thinking, these kind of heuristic functions that would jump their thought process back to the way things used to be, where they were strangers from God and where they were divided from one another. 
They knew the truth of who they were, but they had these deeply ingrained ways of existing in their worship and relationships with God and each other that kept them from believing that they were God's children or that their neighbors truly were their brothers and sisters in Christ. They knew what was true, but they just hadn't grown into living what was true. And so in light of all of that, here's what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Uh, He's writing this just, you know, probably uh, sometime around AD 60 or 62. We're going to come back to why that's kind of significant in a moment here. Um, But we're starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I want to pause really quick right here. Keep in mind the backdrop that Paul is speaking these words into. That visual of the temple, this was right on top of everyone's mind when it came to thinking about worship. Right? And the breaking down of the wall by Jesus Christ is remarkable in that there was a literal wall in Jerusalem that surrounded the temple at the time he's writing this. And Paul is writing this letter reflecting on the death of Jesus that was roughly 30 years earlier Roughly 30, 33 AD. It's confusing, I know. AD should have started when Jesus died. Talk to your Catholic friends. They set the calendar. I don't make the rules. But 30 years ago, Paul is reflecting back on that, knowing and believing that though materially the wall still remained that day, spiritually it had already been destroyed when Jesus died on the cross. And it's not until AD 70 when the material wall itself would fall when Roman soldiers took the city. And so the text goes on. It says, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, right? Barriers no longer exist between you, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now the end of that section is one of my favorite statements in all of scripture because of the power and breadth of the statement that Paul is making and the way it's paired with the intimacy of the relationship that God is portraying. Right, Paul, granted, he's kind of writing like a classic Greek writer here where he uses like 3,800 words to communicate what could have been simplified into like a short sentence. 
So here's how the, this is where we get real heretical. Here's how the, Mitch, the Mitch's Living Translation would summarize those 11 verses. This section is Paul summarizing two realities that Jesus accomplished. One, that Jesus brought you into his home. And two, that he made you family with everyone you meet. That Jesus brought you into his home and he made you family with everyone you meet. And it's this incredibly bold and powerful statement where God is tearing down metaphorical and physical walls between the Jews and the Gentiles and he's looking at everyone and he says, you are my family. Like, I have made you my family. Paul is driving home this story of how you were alienated, how you have been reconciled, and how Christ has brought you home. But to go back to what we were talking about earlier, this idea that A, that we are family with God, and B, that we are family with each other, both of those things kind of cut against those like unspoken, subconscious, second natures that we carry. Right? It kind of cuts against some of those defaults that our brains just hold on to. Every person in this room has had and is on their own journey of actually coming to believe that the story of Jesus is for us, is for you. All of us carry all of these reasons, conscious and subconscious, all of these reasons why we think we aren't worthy of being a part of God's family or we don't belong. Our own shortcomings and weaknesses, right? mistakes we've made in the past, our lack of Christian knowledge, I hear this one a lot, a time you felt hurt or judged by other Christians that made you feel like you didn't belong. Comparison with other Christians. Right? The list could go on and on and on. We are really good at believing that grace isn't for us. The only list that might be longer than that one is the one full of reasons about why, why we don't feel like we're family with those we come in contact with. About reasons why we feel disconnected from one another. Right? I don't know them, so they can't matter to me. I, I, I just, I don't like them. They annoy me, their politics, their personality, their past, their mistakes. They've wronged us. I don't have time for them. I just don't know how to relate with them. We're too far apart in life stage or our experiences are just too different. We could spend hours and hours talking about different reasons we end up feeling divided from God and feeling divided from one another. And yet, Paul seems to view all of these things as old ways of viewing the world. Christ has come and changed everything. So regardless of what thoughts may divide us from God and others because of our natural instincts and second nature, Jesus comes in and he says, look, I have brought you into my home and I have made you family with everyone you meet. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and members of his household. And so as the band comes back up, here's my invitation to you this week. Two invitations, they're really simple. One, identify one shortcut your brain is making that keeps you from living as a child of God. If you're not sure where this is, 
Identify where you carry shame in your life, and it's usually right there. Uh, The second one is this. Identify one person in your life who you feel division from. And find a way to seek unity with them and step into the reality that you are family. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a place for healthy boundaries and and there's all sorts of situations that it it takes wisdom, right? There are times where it it makes sense to cut someone off. right? But I'm talking about there, there are situations where you can tell your brain is making shortcuts when you think about them. That when you get near them, or you know that they're going to be somewhere, you start to sweat, or you get quiet, or, unner- or you get nervous, or uncomfortable. Sometimes, some of those is a family member you're meant to feel connected to. Right? That, that we just need to take some steps towards living into the reality. That that's my brother, that's my sister. They might be a pain. They might be really difficult. I think I've been that a couple times. Once, maybe once. Right? But identifying some of those people and saying, what would it look like to seek unity with them? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that you have chosen um, to include us in your family for reasons we will never know or understand that you sent your son to, to wrap us into your household. That you sent your son to make sure that we know we are loved and we belong and that you see us and that you care. Would you help us see the ways in which we aren't living into that? Would you help us see the ways in which our brain is making shortcuts to an old way of viewing the world? Would you help us see the ways in which our minds aren't leading us to love you and love people well? Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Help us to be those people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.